Thank you. Thank you, worship team. Give them a hand. Thank you very much. If you need a Bible, raise your hands. We're in Psalm 51. Uh, Psalm 51, and our title is called Transforming Sin and Failure into Gifts, uh, Lessons from David. And uh, we're on a series of Lent. We began last week for the 40 days prior to Easter on, and journeying through the Psalms. Last week, Rich began us talking about uh, laments. And uh, this week, I'm going to move into uh, the theme of repentance. So let me, let me begin with a little illustration here that might capture, I think, our, where I'm going to go here with you this morning. <clears throat> this is a, a picture of the Autobahn in Germany. We have our German member up there somewhere in the balcony. And the Autobahn in Germany is one of the few roads in the world where there's no speed limit. Could you imagine? Put a New Yorker on that one. Huh? So, so as long as left lane, the passing lane, you'll see there's always free unless you're passing somebody. So people buy very expensive cars, some, because they just want the experience, whether it's a Porsche or a, you know, what's it called, Beretti, whatever it is, you know, million dollars. One car, $4 million it costs to buy. And they go up to, you know, 150, 200 miles plus an hour. So I thought I would have the experience of going on YouTube last night, and, or yesterday, and I would ride as if I was on the Autobahn. And uh, this guy did it with two cameras in the back seat. And we went 212 miles an hour. It's quite a feeling, you know. Even on YouTube, it was quite a feeling. So if the road is clear and you're free, you can go quite fast and, and, and move well with nobody's in front of you. On the other hand, if you're in a fog, in a car, it doesn't matter if you've got a million-dollar car that can go 200 miles an hour. Uh, you're, you're not going to go because you, you can barely drive one mile an hour or else you'll crash into someone. So in, in the same way, because you can't go forward, in the same way in life, if we're going to go forward in life and do what call, God has asked us to do or what he's inviting us to do, the, the highway he has for us, if we're going to become the people he's called us to become, we have to get out of the fog. And I'm going to call the fog today that we're going to deal with is the fog of guilt and shame. And part of Lent is about spring cleaning of your spiritual life to get rid of all the fog of guilt and sin and excess baggage that we're carrying so we can do what God's called us to do and really follow him and become what he's called us to become. So we're going to look into Psalms again today. And again, the Psalms is a series. And the Psalms is a very unique book because it's 150 songs. It's the only worship book we have in the Bible. There's other songs, but this is like, this is it. And they're written over about 1,000 years. David wrote 73 of them. And in it, you get every experience of emotion and up and down feeling that you could possibly imagine. And, and, you've got all, and they were written so that we could learn how to worship and we could learn how to pray. And, uh, and so uh, of these 150, there's all different types. You've got songs of lament, they're called. Rich did one last week, complain. Two-thirds of the Psalms are, are grieving or laments back to God. You've got what's called enthronement or processional psalms. You know, enter his gates with thanksgiving in your heart. You've got psalms that are called of hallelujah psalms, exalting in God amidst all the poverty and poor in the world. You've got psalms of wisdom, like the book of Proverbs. And then you have psalms of repentance. And there's actually seven psalms about how to repent before God. And we're going to use today the most famous one uh, on David in Psalm 51. Now, I don't, you know, just, you know, psalms is one of my favorite books in the Bible, and I I mean, if you were a monk living in a Trappist monastery, you would sing every 
psalm, all 150 every single week over a period of 30, 40, 50, 60 years of your life. In the old days, they used to sing and pray all 150 psalms every single day. Could you imagine? But if you don't know how to pray, you know, like I really struggle what to say and how do I talk to God, use the psalms. That's why they're written, to help you actually learn how to, how to pray. And, and again, it's got the full gamut in there. And I, for about 10 years, I, I, I prayed three to four psalms almost every day. Uh, and it really transformed my whole prayer life and, and broadened me. It was a tremendous, I, use, I still pray the psalms a lot. Uh, quite not every day, but I, I love the psalms and I pray you'll come to love it as well. So what today we're going to look into is this, in this talk on transforming sin into, into failure, into gifts, is we're going to look at Psalm 51. Now, this was written by David. And this psalm, like a few others, has what's called a, a superscript, or kind of like a little title for it. And it says, this one says, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So he's giving a bit of context uh, for the worship leader and how to, how to use it. So let me, let me now fill out the story before we read the psalm here. David, uh, up to this point, has been a leader 30, 40, 50 years. He's one of, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, leader uh, of Israel ever, ever known. He was an amazing guy, incredibly gifted. He was a shepherd. He was a blue-collar worker. He was a SWAT team Navy SEAL warrior. Uh, he was a politician. He was a worship leader. He was a singer. He was a poet. He was a writer. Uh, he was a king of, of a nation. I mean, the guy was brilliant. Uh, but at some point, 30, 40 years into this thing, he just stopped growing. Kind of got stagnant in his relationship with God. And sin intruded into his life on a scale that really can only be compared to the sin of the Garden of Eden. It's that large. And the story is found in, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and I encourage you to read it, you know, when you go home at some point. So what happens, the story goes, he sends out his armies to battle, and he stays home in the palace. And while he's there, he goes to the rooftop, and he sees this beautiful woman uh, bathing uh, at another rooftop. Apparently, she is naked, but she's married to somebody else. And so David, being king, being into power and control, he just takes her, sleeps with her. She goes back home. He thinks nothing of it. Turns out she gets pregnant. She sends a messenger that she's pregnant. Now he's got to cover this thing up and do something. So calls her husband, who works for him in the army, and calls him back home and basically praises him and says, go back home to your wife, take a night off. His name is Uriah. He's such a loyal servant to David. He's such a good guy. I mean, he's a hunk and he's a good guy, all right, all in one. He will not do it. So he, overnight, he does not go to his wife. Uh, and then, so David brings him back a second time, gets him drunk. He still will not go and sleep with his wife. Now David's got a big problem trying to cover this thing up. So he concocts a plan, and he tells his general, when next time you go into battle, put Uriah in the front of the most intense place of the battle, and then pull back everybody else so he's left there alone, and he gets himself killed, which is exactly what happens. Uriah gets killed. He's dead. Bathsheba has a funeral for her husband. I wonder often, did David go to the funeral and put a flower there on the casket? I don't know. The funeral's done. David marries Bathsheba. Everyone thinks the child is Uriah's child, and David's been a good guy marrying the widow. And babies, you know, time, life goes on. He goes back to going to church, leading worship. He just does his thing, you know, and everything's fine. Until about a year, two years into it, 
You know how these things come. Eventually it comes out. God sends a prophet. Prophet pins him and says, David, God knows what you've done in your eyes. Now, other kings like Saul and Solomon, when Nathan says, you're, Nathan the prophet says, you're the man, you did this. Most other kings would have just killed, yeah, you, I did it. Kill you, you're done. But he doesn't kill Nathan. He actually repents. That's, that's, that's amazing. David had a heart for God underneath it all. And he actually repents at that point, and he writes this psalm. Now, David blows up his life. I mean, he really, I mean, he blew it up. But he models here, how do I come out of the pit of, after blowing your life up? And he repents. And so you may be sitting there saying, I did something stupid too. And I blew up my life. And as someone actually said to me, actually, after this past service, I blew up my life um, as well after becoming a Christian. You know, it was a wonderful conversation. But this story is for you because uh, God can put it back together. In fact, God wants to put it back together and use it actually for good. But regardless, this story is for all of us in this room because this is the story. There's no better text in the whole Bible on how do I actually repent? How do I come to God and ask for forgiveness? And this passage in Psalm 51 pulls it out, it excavates it, it takes it apart, and we're going to take it apart ourselves. And it's the full Cadillac version of repentance. And so with that, let's read. I'm not going to read every verse, but most of them from Psalm 51. And I want to encourage you as we read this, you know, poetry is meant to be felt. It's meant to be experienced. It's not like an intellectual, philosophical exercise. You know, it's meant to like touch your heart. So as we read this, and as I read it, just try to let it enter into you like a song and uh, imagine even actually singing it. So here's what the Lord says through David, his song of repentance. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. So let me this. I'm going I'm to frame it. In, in four ways today. Now, if you've got a pen or pencil, just write these four things down and put them in the back of your Bible or put them on a piece of paper and tuck it away because uh, these are the four points I want to talk about today. About come, first, David, we, we come to God. David comes. You'll see that in just a moment. He doesn't run. Secondly, he takes responsibility. He doesn't lie or blame. Then he asks for a pure heart, and he's not afraid to do that. Very powerful. And then lastly, 
part of his repentance is he shares his story of brokenness. And he's not silent. He tells it. So we're going to take this one by one through, all right? Just hold on to those notes somewhere for when we go forward. So let's just talk about coming to God. David comes to God. This is what makes him so great. He comes to God. He doesn't run away. So let me ask you, how did your family or how did your culture do forgiveness? How did your family do asking forgiveness and giving forgiveness? What did you learn growing up about that? Uh, I can tell you this, every family and every culture does it poorly, but we all do it poorly in a different way. So, for example, I remember growing up, my Uncle Red and my Aunt Rosie, we would go to their house a lot for holidays, and my Aunt Rosie used to just humiliate my uncle, her husband, in front of the family. She would say things to him that were just terrible. I used to say to myself as a kid growing up, why doesn't he stand up and say something back to his wife? And then I found out as I got older that he had committed an indiscretion with another woman many years earlier. And uh, he was basically paying for it. And he paid for it, as far as I know, till the day he died. <laughs> that was a message I got about forgiveness. But actually, my family functioned more like the Godfather family. <laughs> and if you know this scene in The Godfather, Michael Corleone, who is the Godfather, it's his brother who has committed a, a terrible, he's done a terrible thing. And so he's given him a hug, asking forgiveness, but basically, if you know the story, you're only going to be alive until mama dies. And then we're taking you out in the fishing boat and you're done. And he gets, he kills him. So, and that really was a message I got, really, as well. There, first of all, nothing's free, especially forgiveness. And you're going to pay. And we never forget, either. And, and so, it's very hard. We all bring these messages into how we approach forgiveness now with God and the new family of Jesus. And so, what do you do? Because, you know, I knew, and like many of us know, it's not safe to come out. And you're afraid of punishment. So, so what do you do when you're aware of your own sin? What do you do when you get in touch deeply with your own failures? And, you know, how, how, do you, how do you hide? We all do it in different ways. You know, some people, we, 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 we avoid God by, by, by medicating ourselves. So, you know, we don't want to feel it because it hurt, hurts so much to feel it. So we, we medicate through, of course, you've got drugs, you've got alcohol, you've got, you know, pornography, you've got shopping, you've got eating, you, whatever. But something to kind of like, a lot of people stop going to church. Just so ironic, right? I, I, my, my last time mass, I did something terrible. I can't go there. So rather than even come to God, they actually physically avoid him altogether. And they say, I'll come back to church when I clean my life up. Other people, the way they hide from God is they're just angry all the time. You know, folks, and I know none of you, but other people get angry. You know, and, and they're so touchy. And you go near them, and uh, they attack you before you could possibly find out any of their vulnerabilities. They just are tigers, and they're constantly on the attack. And then there's just others who, the way they hide is basically is they don't let anybody in. They're, they're aware of their frailties. Uh, they're aware of their imperfections and limits. And so what they do is you say, how you doing? They say, great, 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 awesome. And you? 
You know, and they, they talk about their accomplishments a lot and all their successes, but they don't let anybody into their weaknesses. And lots of folks function like that their whole lives. And so here's the thing. Every human being carries guilt and shame. It's part of being human. It's part, it, it, so it doesn't matter how rich you are, how famous you are, how powerful you are, color of your skin, culture, your age. Everybody knows those experiences of guilt and shame. And there's two basic extremes. Some people over here are in guilt and shame, self-hate, go down. They just, just hate themselves. They don't move from the pit. And they live their whole lives like my uncle in shame and paying for that. Okay, and, and, they, and they take it on. The other extreme are folks who are just basically, sorry, sorry, but you know they're not sorry for anything because they just kind of like, just, they, don't, they, don't go, they don't let themselves take the time to actually feel it, and it's just all a big cover. But what David does for us is, I'm going to call it, is, is a, a third way, it's a biblical way of, of openness and transparency and brokenness, and what he does is he, he comes to God. That's what makes him so great. He comes to God with all the, the horror of what, he, what he's done. And so, now let me just make a distinction. We've made this distinction before, but it's very important to separate the two. That we get clear the difference between guilt and shame. All right, now, guilt is about something we do. You know, I do something bad. I, 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 I ran a red light. You know, that, that was bad. You know, I, I, I said something bad about my neighbor. That was, that was just a bad thing to do, okay? That's guilt. I ask forgiveness for the act of what I did. Shame is different. Shame is about who you are who I am. I ran a red light. I'm a bad person. I didn't get 100 in a test. I'm stupid. I'm a stupid person. So shame is about who you are. It's the essence of, of, of your being. See, it's, it's one thing to say, I made a mistake. It's another thing to actually believe that you are a mistake. Some of us, depending on our families and our cultures, carry a lot more shame for the things we've done than others. And, uh, and, and so I you know, to me, a, a nice definition of shame is a combination from a couple, couple different people is shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of being flawed, defective, and deficient as a human being. All right, I, I, I feel flawed, deficient, and defective as a human being. That's why some people, can, doesn't matter how many titles they get in front of their name, they still feel stupid because it's inside of the shame. It doesn't matter their accomplishments because it's something deeply internal. David is able to come to God with, I don't know how much guilt or shame he's carrying, but he comes to God with it. This is the beauty. And he, 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 he's so bold. I, I, he goes, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. I mean, he's just, he is just, he's amazing. Because he knows about God's loyal love. He knows about his compassion like a mother toward a child. And he just, he comes. He just, I mean, is he worthy to come? Absolutely not. But he understands something about the love of God who died for him on a cross a thousand years before the crucifixion. He sees it. And, and he's able to say, you know, blot out my transgressions. He asks. Now that word blot out is a great word. In ancient times, they would put your like, sins or transgressions or crimes on a papyrus scroll. And that word for blot out is to basically erase it. God, erase what I've done from your book. I love that. You know, and, and cleanse me. The idea of wash, washing of clothes, cleansing of clothes, and the idea of a leper. I'm like a leper, Lord. I need you to make my skin clean. Great images he's got here. He wants to be washed. 
He wants new skin. He wants this blotted out, and he comes boldly, and he asks God. And he comes to God. And again, that's what makes David great. He comes. He doesn't run. But secondly, he takes responsibility. He doesn't lie. He doesn't blame. He doesn't say, hey, you know what? I was exhausted that day. I mean, it was a bad day. I was under so much pressure. And you know what, furthermore? That woman should never have been on the roof taking a bath in the first place. I mean, she tempted me. I mean, she did. In fact, you know what? You, th you think I'm bad? Do you know what the other kings are doing? Do you know what's going on out there? I fell once. I mean, none of that excuses. N you know, no spin. He's able to just say, I know. I, I know my transgressions. My sin's always before me. Against you and you only, O Lord, have I sinned. That's it. In fact, in the original Hebrew, it's like, it's very, like, emphatic. Like, in, we have in English, big, bold letters. Against you, and he says it twice, against you, O Lord, have I sinned. Not against any other human being first. He, he, he gets it. And actually, um, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people, some people get angry at the consequences of their sin, but not so mad at the sin itself. You follow me? Like I messed up with God. They're more upset that I got caught and how it's affecting me. Um, and he actually uses three different words in Psalm 51 to describe his sin. He uses the word transgression, which is, he, which is basically outright willful rebellion. I mean, he calls it that clear. I was willfully defiant and rebellious, Lord. Another word he uses, the word iniquity, which is another word about, goes, God, I twisted your truth. I, I, I took it and I, I twisted it to make it something it's not. And then he uses the word sin for, I actually, I purposely missed the mark of what you asked me to, to do. I veered off course. There was a course laid out for me. I got off it and made my own. And he goes, Lord, he takes full responsibility. You know, I did it. The difference is most of us, what we do is we lie and we blame. Now, there was a TED Talk a couple of years ago by a woman named Pamela Meyer, and it was called How to Spot a Liar. And it's actually been download, downloaded over 9 million times. And here's what she said. She's a, uh, yeah, I guess a neurobehavioral scientist. And she started her talk like this. She goes, I don't want to alarm anybody in this room, but it just came to my attention that the person on your right is a liar. Also, the person on your left is a liar. Oh, yes, the person sitting in your seat is a liar. <laughs> We're all liars. And she goes on, she goes, on a given day, studies show that you may be lied to anywhere from 10 to 200 times. He goes, many of them are white lies. In fact, she goes on to say, many of us collude with the lies. That's why it goes on so much. But she says, another study shows that a stranger's lie three times in the first 10 minutes of meeting a new person. Who knows what's going on in that foyer downstairs, huh? <laughs> so you think about, you know, sports athletes, you know, Alex Rodriguez. We won't get into all that. You know, the Yankees, he's back at training camp. Lance Armstrong, bicycling guy. I mean, if you watch that movie on him, that lies, it's unbelievable. You know, Olympians, politics. I don't know, Nixon, Monica Lewinsky, Clinton. I mean, you, 
I, I mean, the Ukraine negotiations right now with Vladimir Putin, I, I follow it because it's so unbelievable. You, know, you don't know what they did to us a thousand years ago. Got it, I understand. I, you know, something happened a thousand years ago. Must we massacre the whole village, you know? Corporate fraud in 2010 was one, almost $1 trillion. I mean, the whole mortgage crisis of 2008 was all lies. I mean, and then, then let alone families, right? There's family lies that just go on for generations. We all participate in them. No one says anything. And again, it's such a part of our culture. And I, I understand it all. But David says, doesn't participate in that. He just says, I sinned. I have deliberately sinned against you, O God. That's it. It's clean and it's tight. But he doesn't blame either. Um, we blame a lot. I mean, I'm, I'm a, I mean, I'm sad that my wife's here in third service to admit it, but I'm a, I'm a blamer. I'm a blamering. And uh, my kids are blamerlings. We blame parents. We blame our children. We blame our spouses. We blame the government. We blame our bosses. We blame our co-workers. We blame the weather. We blame the traffic. We blame the economy. We blame, we blame all the demons of hell. You know, we blame God if we have to. But it's so easy to blame, you know, and not take responsibility. I mean, some people think they're repenting, and really all they're doing is complaining. Uh, this past week, a week ago, we had a, a marriage conference here at New Life, and <clears throat> uh, really at Jerry's insistence, we added a new piece, and it was called Writing a Letter of Forgiveness to Your Spouse. And I must admit, I was, because again, when there's no forgiveness, you're in a fog. Your relation with God's in a fog, and your relation with other people's in a fog. And so for the first time, I began to bring this in to say, we've got to deal with the issues of forgiveness, okay, in marriages. And so again, I, you know, I wasn't that excited about doing it. Jerry insisted. I said, all right. And then she said, you're going to demonstrate it. I said, all right. So, so I had to write my forgiveness letter. So as I'm writing it, I'm realizing this is very hard. It's very painful to have to, first of all, think it fully through. And it's very difficult to actually write it. And I was really aware of how hard it is to take responsibility. Again, it's so much easier. I just say, Jerry, let's just tell, just say, say, I'm sorry. Just say, I'm sorry, you know. Let's move on, you know. And it's a big difference, as we talked about last week, we're saying, I'm sorry, to say, you know, excavate it and say, now will you please forgive me? And you're vulnerable enough to wait for an answer. That's a much higher level. David here is just, he's just so vulnerable and out there, you know, in his, in his forgiveness. And, and so, um, you know, every day we need to be repenting. In a sense, it's not just when we blow up our lives or something big, or, or, although there are times we do blow our lives up, but in a sense, all the Christian life is one of asking forgiveness on a daily basis, repenting. And the Anglican Church in the 1500s wrote the Book of Common Prayer, and uh, they pray this prayer every week in their Anglican churches around the world. And I actually love it. It's one of the best prayers of repentance that I've ever seen in one spot. And I've used it for years and years in my own life. Um, not every day, but, but a lot. We've used it at New Life. And we're going to pray it when we close the service. But it, it kind of captures it, um, kind of the wholeness of it, uh, together. And it, 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 I remember going on certain summers, I'd go to an Anglican church, and one of the reasons I went was just so I could pray this prayer. Because I loved praying it corporately. I felt like I was getting just cleansed. 
And it reads like this, most merciful God, we confess we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. I figured that covers quite a bit. By what we've done and by what we've left undone. That covers quite a bit. We have not loved you with our whole heart. Oops, that's a big one. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. We turn to you, Lord. And then I love this. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us. A humble statement. And that we may delight in your will. We're going to get to this in just a moment. And walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. It's a lovely prayer. So, again, he does three things. He does four things. One, he asks. He comes to God and asks. Secondly, he takes responsibility. But the third thing is, he asks for a pure heart. I mean, this is, this is amazing. I mean, this is bold. This is like, what? We're lucky we're letting you out of jail, all right? What are you doing? You're asking for something here. Um, and again, if you're like me, I know what it's like when I, when I blow my life apart and I really see sometimes my sin in all its fullness, I can go into a pit of shame that I can't get out. Some of you know that hole that you just, it's devastating and it's overwhelming. David not only comes out and asks forgiveness by t- and take responsibility, he actually asks for like, he says, God, create in me a pure heart, oh God. I'm like, pure heart, you're lucky you're getting forgiveness. What do you want, blood? You know, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Sermon on the Mount. And David asks for a miracle here. He asks for a miracle for his heart. See, his desires of his heart got twisted. And he's asking God to, to redo his heart and make it pure that he'd actually desire the good, the true, and the beautiful. In other words, you're gonna, we're going to always experience temptation. But, and David knows he can't change his heart. He can't restore himself. He can't create something new in his heart. That's the work of God. And he uses the same word of creation of Genesis 1, God creating the heavens and the earth out of chaos and darkness. He goes, God, the work you did in creation and making the universe, I need you to create and, and create in me a pure heart. What a prayer. Do a miracle in me, oh God. Have you ever said to yourself, I can't change that much. I'm not going to change. I mean, I know my lust. I know my rage. I know my bitterness. I know my apathy toward people that are hurting. I know my lack of compassion. I know my insecurity. I know my hatreds. I know my slanderous tongue. I know my addictions. I know my self-hate. And you say, you know what? And you hear those inner voices and those outer voices that say, you'll never change, you bum. You'll always be the same basic person you, you were. I can imagine people saying about David, that guy will never change that power-hungry maniac king. David somehow does not listen to those voices. And we all hear them, I think, at different times. And he comes to God, takes responsibility, and he asks for a miracle. Create in me a pure heart, O oh God. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I just look at that. I mean, here's the great news. David knows already, hundreds of years before Christ, we believe in the God of the resurrection. We believe in the God of heaven and earth who's alive and does new beginnings and miracles today. The first miracle for every one of us in this room is that you're alive. You've sinned and you're alive like David. It's a miracle. 
But the second miracle is he forgives you of your sins and he gives you a new heart. Now, as we do our part and we offer ourselves to him, he takes the mud of our lives and the mess of our lives and he molds it into something beautiful. Friends, it's the great miracle of Christianity is that God takes our messes and as we come to him for forgiveness, we say, God, Created me a pure heart. Do a miracle in me. He takes it and makes something beautiful. That's a gift to the world. You see, and David understands that if you ask, it's the key to miracles. It's one of the great truths of the New Testament. Jesus is constantly saying to people, ask, seek, and knock. He says that a Samaritan woman, she has a bad theology. She's an imperfect, you know, seeker. And he says, listen, if you knew who it was, if you knew the free gift of God, and who it is speaking to you, you would ask him, and he would have granted you living water. You see, God, if we ask, God off, God gives. But it's not based on your performance. It's not based on you, being, you begging on the ground. It's not you beating yourself and flagellating yourself. It's not you getting a deeper life. It's not you being totally transformed first. It's not you get, a, you do, you get from God a reward. It's not, this is not a prize. You're not being a best spiritual champion. All you have to do is ask. It's called a free gift to anybody, including David in the pit when he's blown his life apart. And he gets free grace, free forgiveness, and a new pure heart from God. It's unbelievable. But he comes. So your faith may be weak. Your faith may be misdirected. But you know what? Asking is the mustard seed. Just coming to ask God, that's faith. And God says, if you have just a little bit of faith, that's all you need, it'll move a mountain. That's good news. But David does one more thing that's even incredible. Comes to God, he takes responsibility, he asks for a pure heart, but then he takes his story of brokenness and he shares it. It says, don't be silent in parentheses. Now, we have so much silence around our sins and failures and brokenness. I mean, don't, I mean, I'm sure like your family, like my family, we had a commandment. Don't share your dirty laundry with anybody. Can't trust those people. They'll use it against you. Silence. And we have this silence and pretend and mask that, that dominates the culture. You don't show weakness. You don't show vulnerability. You're my son. You're my daughter, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Now what's really sad is that that does not belong in the new family of Jesus. Because what David does is, is we are the new family of Jesus. What David does is he takes his story. The guy, do you realize what he did? He murdered somebody. He killed a human being. He lied. I mean, what a lie. He coveted, committed adultery. He, he broke integrity with the whole nation. I mean, for years. I mean, I don't know how long it went on, but I mean, but he takes that story and he lets it get written in the history books. I mean, he was the king. He didn't have to let it get written in the history books. Second Samuel 11, you can read the whole story of what he did. Now, if you were the king, would you let it get written in the history books? You'd say, there's a lot of other really important events that we got to make sure that we note in the history books. Would you make sure that your sin and adultery and murder got in there? And then would you write a song about it and have them sing it at church? Every week? 
I don't know, I'm sure they didn't sing it every week. But could you imagine, let's, th let's take a minute. Rich, let's take Rich, all right? He's not, he, let's take Rich. Right? <laughs> this Rich isn't here, he's upstairs right now. Rich commits adultery, he murders somebody, okay? He lies to us all, lack of integrity. And do you want to sing about it? I mean, could you imagine, would you want him leading your church? We'll shoot him first, then we'll let him lead, I think, you know? But how different, isn't it amazing? David wrote a song and had them sing it, not just in his generation, but he made sure it got in the Psalms, that for the rest of history, we would be reading and singing and praying his story as if it were our own. I mean, guys, how many churches would allow such a thing? That person gets fired so quick. What a miracle. What a miracle. This is the full repentance. He's not hiding. He actually shares his brokenness to other people. And again, let me just say as a note, there are some things that, that, have, that we've done that are better left unspoken because it would not be loving and kind to share them. It, it would hurt people. Nonetheless, so, so we need wisdom. Nonetheless, we need to somehow figure out how to share honestly about our brokenness and our failures and our sins and how God has forgiven us and how God has given us a new heart, how God has picked us up from the pit and got us on a new way. Because David writes this, I love this, he goes, I will teach transgressors your ways, and that sinners will turn back to you. Do you understand that? His life, he said, I'm gonna take my story, and may it be used by you, God, I'm gonna teach other people to turn to you. My whole life now is not out of being a super king with great military strategy who could write great music, I am gonna teach sinners about your way that there is forgiveness from guilt and shame. There is a new beginning when people come to you. That you are a miracle-working, graceful, kind God who takes the mess of life that we make and he weaves into something beautiful for his glory. And we are a common people. We're all broken. The whole world's out there broken, but nobody wants to admit it. But we want to say there's a God who forgives sins through Jesus. There is a blood of Jesus that's been shed on the cross for every one of us. And we offer that to the world, and we are the first ones who've received it. And so I know there are a few of you in this room, you, 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 you've done some terrible things. I mean, I, you know, and uh, I, I understand. You may feel I'm disqualified for what I've done. And you've committed, some of you have committed horrific crimes. But I want you to hear this. You are not disqualified. David was not he returned and became a king and a warrior and a poet and a singer and a leader. Yes, there were some consequences, but God's not, God, God said, you're not on plan B the rest of your life. In fact, I'm going to take it as you offer it to me, and I'm going to weave it into a new plan A. And Solomon becomes, a son is born from his marriage with Bathsheba, who becomes the king of Israel, and Jesus, the Messiah, comes through that line. Bathsheba and Uriah. God does something magnificent through David's life. And I love when he says, you know, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, are a broken spirit. He's saying, I'm not looking to be, he realizes God does not want religion. He's looking for people who are humble and vulnerable and soft. The word, my sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit. That is the word for literally crushed. 
What he's saying is there's no more pride left in him. You know you're broken and contrite when you're not judgmental of other people anymore. As someone said to me, I shared with some Christians what I had done, and they, well, the first thing they said to me, Pastor Pete, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I said, they don't get it. Because you know, once you're in touch with your own sin, you realize you could do anything. There's no sin that's beyond you. But you're not easily offended when you're crushed in spirit and broken. You're, you're able to say, I was wrong. You're not concerned about impressing people. Because you're humble, you're approachable, you're soft, you can let things go. But you may think that admitting the worst things that you've done or the worst things about you will destroy you is the worst thing. You don't understand. Admitting it and coming to grips with it is the best thing that could ever have happened to you. Amen. It frees you and your life becomes a gift for the world. God has, there's no greater picture of the grace of God than this one. So listen everybody, worship team, come on forward. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son who went to a cross and died for your sins and mine and your shame. We don't need you to pay for your sins again. The blood of Jesus was enough. One payment was sufficient for all the sins of the human race. That's the, the great large news of the gospel is free forgiveness, free gift, free grace, unearned, to the asking. So I want to invite you all to stand with me. And I want to invite us to come to God, to take responsibility, ask for a pure heart, and then we'll share the story out of our brokenness. So, so listen, here's God's will for your life is to come out of the fog and for me. Because God has a passing lane, a highway of life for you to live on. And by living a life, maybe it's, maybe it's a moment for you, but even just in general, I'm asking on a daily consistent basement, you're asking for forgiveness. You're not going into the pit there, and you're cleansing the fog. You can drive and fly in that life that God has for you. So let's close our little time before we go to worship, and let's pray this prayer. And I, again, I encourage you. Again, I put it on my Twitter and Facebook this morning, and New Life will do the same. Or you can download it from the Internet. This is worth, like, taking, printing off, and putting it in the Bible or on your computer string, uh, screen and just praying this maybe once a day or a couple times a week. It is just, it's cleansing, and it's very freeing. But why don't we pray it all together uh, before God from this book of common prayer and uh, let's, let's make it our, our own. So together out loud. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with all our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing together forward and as we close here we've got the Lord's table uh, to your right and uh, so I invite you to come and freely eat and drink of, of Christ and have communion with him so as we close here uh, let me invite you to respond to wherever you are in your journey we're all in different places here in the room 
So perhaps you're here and you uh, actually have blown up your life, uh, whether you're not sure you even know Christ yet, or maybe you are a Christian. You, you've done some things that you, it's a mess. But God brought you here today. God, God knew you were supposed to be in the room today for this. And I want to invite you just to do what David did. Just come. Come as you are. Just come to God. And uh, let him forgive you and ask him for a miracle. And let him make something beautiful out of this disaster. That's what he does. That's who, that's who he is. And so you may just want to, you want to come forward. I, I tell you, just by coming forward, it's, it's an act it's an act of faith, actually. It's, just, it's a response. And God just needs a little bit of faith, and then he does the rest. That's the beauty of it. Or you may be here, and you're, you're just in a fog, and it's a general fog. You've just been out of touch with God. You're just living kind of in a haze, and you're not moving forward in life. And you just want to get right with God today, regardless of where you are on your journey. I want to encourage you to come forward and just get right. Cleanse, get some prayer, and get up for what God has for you going forward, all right? And the prayer teams will be here for as long as we need to. And, but you really want to receive a cleansing, a blotting out, a you know, fresh wind of God in your life, a freedom and a joy that you can hold your head up, that you're loved by God, you're forgiven by God. It's a wonderful feeling that you're chosen by God, and he really has a highway for you to drive on and something for you to become. And that shame that you're living in is just not from him. All right? So I invite you to open your hands up towards heaven to receive a, a blessing. It's just kind of our way of just you know, close your eyes and just, you want to just receive right now from God a gift of prayer for you. So I, may the Lord open up your heart right now. May he expand and enlarge your soul, your capacity to, to receive. May you see the God of Israel that David saw. May you see a glimpse of the love of God, of the compassion of God, of the forgiveness of God, of the blood of Jesus on that cross for you. May, may you see him and may God fill you with power and grace to come to him now to come to him each day through the day. May you be a person who comes and asks. And may you receive a pure heart as you leave this place. New desires that, that delight in him and his will. And may your life and your story of your brokenness point people to Jesus. That out of your weakness, Jesus would be seen as strong. That you would give people a hope out there who have no hope. That there's a living God who's alive and active today. So be blessed, I pray, as you leave here. And again... May your failures and sins be transformed into a gift for other people, I pray. Be blessed in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. amen. Thank you, everybody. Altar's open. Bless you.